This is episode 246 with 250 marathoner, clinical assistant professor at Stanford Children's Orthopedic and Sports Medicine Center, bone stress injury expert, Dr. Emily Krauss. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and this episode is a deep dive on bone injuries like stress fractures and stress reactions. Dr. Emily Krauss is joining us, and she researches bone stress injuries at Stanford University's Healthy Runner Project and is an expert on running injuries, stress fractures, and red S. If you're new to the Strength Running Podcast, this show features training conversations, coaching calls, and experts in the running space to elevate your thinking about the sport. I want to help you make wiser decisions about your training so that you can keep improving. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. But Strength Running is not just a podcast. Don't miss our growing YouTube channel, where we have hundreds of videos on effective strategies to stay healthy, my favorite strength exercises, training principles that never go out of style, and more. Go to youtube.com slash strengthrunning, subscribe, and you'll see every video that we publish. And of course, strengthrunning.com is where it all began. Since 2010, we've been helping runners around the world improve with our award-winning blog, our free email courses on strength training, nutrition, injury prevention, and improving your mindset. Plus, all of Strength Running's training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. You can learn more about those at strengthrunning.com coaching. This episode is brought to you by Inside Tracker, one of my favorite companies that is investing heavily in the running community. They test your blood for dozens of biomarkers so you know if there are any red flags with your physiology that might be holding back your running. Then they give you science-backed recommendations to improve anything that might be outside of your personal optimal range. Get 25% off any of their blood tests with code STRENGTHRUNNING at insidetracker.com strength running. That code has no space. Strength running is one word, and you can see all the details at insidetracker.com slash strength running. I'm also excited to introduce our newest sponsor, the Spartan Race Series. Ever since I tried my first obstacle course race back in 2012, I have loved these events. They're athletic, they're demanding, and they require you to be more than just a runner. They require you to be a well-rounded athlete something that I wholeheartedly endorse here on this podcast. Go to spartan.com to find a local race near you. And if you're in Colorado, I hope to see you on June 12th at the Colorado Springs Spartan Race. That's spartan.com to find a short or long distance obstacle course race near you. Our guest today is a hell of a runner and an incredible force in the running community, Dr. Emily Krauss. She is a clinical assistant professor at Stanford Children's Orthopedic and Sports Medicine Center and specializes in physical medicine and rehabilitation sports medicine. She's involved in multiple research projects, including the Healthy Runner Project, which is focused on bone stress injury prevention in collegiate distance runners. Emily also performs gait analysis at the Stanford Run Safe Injury Prevention Program and serves as a medical advisor for the Adaptive Sports Injury Prevention Program. 
She's also run multiple marathons and a 50K ultra marathon. And her most recent PR from last December in the marathon is two hours and 50 minutes. We are diving deep into the topic of stress fractures today, discussing the varieties of bone injuries that affect runners, how these injuries are properly diagnosed, the numerous risk factors for bone injuries, and your options for treatment. If you have a bone injury or would rather prevent them, this is something that I recommend. You'll love this conversation. Without further delay, please enjoy this episode with Dr. Emily Kraus. Hi, Emily. Thanks for making some time for us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's an honor to be here. So I'm excited. We are going to explore bone injuries today, an injury that endurance runners are unfortunately quite familiar with. So I would love to start, Emily, with your background and some of the work that you've been doing at the Healthy Runner, I'm sorry, Healthy Runner Project at Stanford. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good starting point. Make sure that I'm, I'm a, a qualified to be talking about this. So um, my background, I'm a PM&R, sports medicine physician. PM&R stands for physical medicine and rehabilitation. Um, I'm not an orthopedist. I'm not an orthopedic surgeon, so I don't do surgeries, but I do non-operative management of musculoskeletal injuries in athletes um, with a specific interest and passion in runners. And I would say also say female athletes. I, I grew up in Nebraska and went to um, undergrad and med school in Nebraska and um, came out to Stanford for my residency and sports medicine fellowship training. And now I practice um, medicine at Stanford Children's Orthopedics and Sports Medicine Center. Although I do see um, adults, I see age eight and up, see a lot of adult kids, I'd say. And um, I, I also do a lot of research. So I kind of split my time between doing um, the clinical care of the athlete and the runner, as well as the, the research and understanding the athlete and the runner to um, prevent injuries and hopefully optimize performance as well. So when I started here at Stanford, I was really interested in getting all involved in more clinical research. Um, I had some research background in um, college and med school, but really wanted to get um, get my hands dirty and um, get involved in some research. And so I started to work with Dr. Michael Fredrickson, who's a, a mentor of mine and also an amazing sports medicine physician. And he's the PI, our principal investigator, lead researcher for the Healthy Runner Project. Um, which was a which is an ongoing study actually. So I started this um, eight or so years ago as a resident, and it's still ongoing. And it's really exploring bone stress injuries and different risk factors contributing to bone stress injuries that can um, ideally prevent um, bone stress injuries as well as um, either decrease severity or time away from sport. And the main target or focus is looking at nutrition and the nutrition interventions as. A, a method to address um, some of these risk factors uh, before they get too um, too out of out of hand and uh, more more severe. So it's an honor um, to be continuing to work with the Healthy Runner Project, and it's actually expanded to other Pac-12 schools this year, uh, which is exciting and, and challenging. If you um, are involved in any research, to try and coordinate studies with all um, the different institutions. So we have an incredible research team. Big shout out to. Ellie Diamond, one of the research coordinators, and Megan Roach, um, who, who you may know, um, who's um, one of our lead researchers um, for um, our other research program, which um, I'm sure I'll, I'll talk about and give a shout out um, about later. Yeah, Megan Roach was recently on the podcast within the last year to talk all about how runners and COVID interact, and she's getting her PhD in uh, 
a, a certain subsection of epidemiology, if I'm not mistaken. So she is Correct. an incredible human being, an incredible resource for runners. And I'm really glad that you're still involved with the Healthy Runner Project because it's such a long-term project that I think it really adds some valuable insights to this topic. But before we go on with bone stress injuries, Emily, uh, are you really going to introduce yourself and not talk about your own running at all? <laughs> you're quite the, the good runner yourself. Oh, man, I can consider myself a competitive recreational runner. I, I didn't run collegiately um, or in a collegiate, at the collegiate level. But during um, during college, I started to increase my mileage and had the, you know, the, the downloadable um, marathon training plan that I followed um, religiously and didn't didn't really enjoy it. Um, trained solo and finally got um, as part of a team, um, Team Nebraska Brooks, it was called at that point in um, Omaha and joined that team and started to train a little more seriously and train with a group, ran a few marathons. Then I think I've run um, now 10 marathons total. And um, yeah, that's kind of my, my sweet spot distance, I guess, um, road marathons. And my last uh, marathon was CIM, California International Marathon, last December and ran a 250 and change. Awesome. Just incredible. So I'm, I'm so happy for you. And you just keep improving, it seems like. Uh, so hopefully many, many more improvements to come. So let's dive into this whole issue of bone injuries. And I think for runners, we are familiar with stress fractures. Maybe some of us have heard about stress reactions. Can you talk about this spectrum of bone injuries and, and really what's included under this umbrella term of bone injury? Yeah, yeah. Let's start with the basics and definitions. I, I think it, it can be complicated for a runner because they hear these words sometimes used interchangeably and one sounds more scary than the other, stress fracture versus stress reaction. Um, what's the difference? What's a bone stress injury among all these um, these definitions and titles? And so um, a bone stress injury is an overuse injury of the bone, um, often occurs from repetitive submaximal loading, such as in the sport of running. And um, these usually occur during um, changes in training, whether it's an increase in mileage or change in intensity, or sometimes there are these underlying risk factors, which we'll get into. And so I use bone stress injury. And like you said, kind of in an umbrella term to encompass the whole spectrum of um, the reaction to bone. So um, there are different grading criteria um, for bone stress injuries that you may hear um, used usually related to um, imaging um, imaging grading. So an MRI will have different grading scales. And so those go from like a grade one to a grade four. And I think that's helpful to just break this down. So when we think about a low-grade bone stress injury, that's like a stress reaction. So there is no fracture line. Um, on an MRI, for example, we may see some some edema or changes on um, certain parts of the bone, like the periosteum. So almost like the, the skin of the bone, I sometimes call it, which is not a very scientific term, but it's the outermost part. And so there's these some, some of these stress-related changes that are already happening. And an athlete may be fairly asymptomatic or may just notice this um, degree of soreness or discomfort that may feel like a muscle strain. And we often see that in my clinic where they're like, yeah, I, just, I thought it was a calf strain or a, a strain of my quad or a hip flexor. And then as the um, load progresses and um, that, that, that injury to the bone worsens, more edema or inflammation in the bone um, is happening. So that's when it gets more into the bone marrow. 
And that this is still considered a stress reaction. Just, it's just a more severe stress reaction. So now we're getting into these higher grades, grades two, grades three um, bone stress injuries, if we we're comparing it to an MRI, which is a type of imaging system. And then if we, um, if that athlete continues to train and continues to um, engage in that repetitive submaximal loading, um, that bone stress reaction can then progress to an actual fracture line. And sometimes you don't even see that on an x-ray. It's so subtle and you, it requires an MRI to see. And so that's when we call it a stress fracture. So these are all bone stress injuries that they're just at varying grades. And I think it can be a little complicated when, when you go into a clinic and um, you present with an injury and maybe the imaging is, is an x-ray only and, and it was negative. And so the athlete thinks that they're, they're in the clear. And so um, sometimes um, it is soft tissue, but sometimes if the um, pain progresses and persists, I think it is um, worthwhile to get more imaging or, or really um, kind of talk to a, a specialist to see and correlate those symptoms, whatever that athlete might be feeling um, with um, kind of just the likelihood that it could be a bone stress injury. And I say that because the management of a bone stress injury is, is very different than a, a soft tissue tendon injury or, or even like a, a sprain. And I'm way more um, lenient about keeping an athlete moving and doing their engaging in their sport with some degree of a tendon injury. And I'm much more strict about uh, my management for bone stress injuries. So I think that's kind of the why does it matter? And it does matter as far as um, the progression and even the severity of the injury and um, very unlikely, but it does happen if a stress fracture gets so severe um, it can become displaced or the alignment changes in a way that doesn't allow it to heal back safely and in the optimal um, way. And that often requires surgery or a significantly longer um, delay in um, return to um, sport, which can be very frustrating for, for an athlete who's trying to um, has goal races and who has um, goals in long-term and short-term. For sure. I think a bone injury is probably the worst news that runners could maybe receive from a doctor or a physical therapist. Um, now, is that stage four bone injury? Is that the actual stress fracture when you can see a clear line in an MRI? So yeah, that grade four, and there are kind of subgrades too, like grade 4A, 4B, and um, not to get too deep into the research, but that the research is um, primarily focused on tibial bone stress injuries. Um, tibial or shin bone stress injuries are the most common bone stress injury um, that occurs in runners. And so that grading system was used to um, actually help athletes and clinicians and um, the sports medicine team guide return to, to play and return to sport. So the higher the grade, the longer it's going to take to return to sport and the longer that um, especially that immobilization um, will be needed to ensure um, kind of optimal healing. So yeah, that grade four kind of that stress fracture line, um, the high grade bone stress injury. Now is grade five when the bones like popping out of the skin and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you grade can't five, walk anymore. Like code blue, code red, go, go straight to the ER. <laughs> um, and I guess my other like fine, like small little asterisk is like femoral neck bone stress injuries, which are, are definitely more concerning for an athlete. And um, you hear fem neck or femoral neck bone stress injuries, stress reactions, stress fractures. And it's, it's a much, it's, it's an unfortunate diagnosis just because it does really pull that athlete out of the season. And it, it's a longer return just to get back. There's more non-weight bearing, which means more muscle atrophy 
and just a longer time to get back into um, regular training. And I mean, we can talk about that a little bit more, some of the nuances with different anatomic locations, but that grading is a little different. We're kind of not as we're thinking about edema and where the inflammation is in the, in the femoral neck or in that. So I guess femoral neck just to, so we're on the same page. Um, so you've got the, the femur, the big long thigh bone, you've got the, um, femoral head. So that's the kind of the ball part. And then the socket is the, um, is the acetabulum and the neck is kind of the connection between the shaft of the thigh bone and the, the ball. And so that, that femoral neck is a pretty vulnerable um, spot because of that. Um, it's just the angulation of, um, the, of the femoral neck. And depending on the location of the fracture, whether it's on the inside or the outside, there's um, either tension or compression, and that can really affect the healing. So we have to think about even where that fracture line is in the bone as in addition to the degree of the fracture line um, or the degree like the, or the, the amount of inflammation within the bone, if it's just the edema, hopefully that wasn't too much of a science dive. <laughs> no, I love it. I, I think it'll be really helpful when we talk about recovery and treatment from bone injuries to maybe go into some of the details on, you know, where it is on the body, which bone we're talking about and how that impacts things. Uh, but first, I'd love to know, and you've hinted at this, how do we actually diagnose a bone stress injury? You've mentioned x-ray, MRI, talking to a clinician about other risk factors. What's the, the lay of the land on how you actually get this diagnosed? Because, you know, I had one scare with a potential stress fracture in my running career, and there wasn't a clear procedure or method or set of steps I could take to go get this properly diagnosed. There's like the tuning fork on your shin. And I don't even know if that has much validity to it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on all that. Yeah. So there is, um, yeah, there are a number of different um, exam tests out there that have their own um, percentages or um, stats on the sensitivity and specificity, which I, which I don't have off the top of my head. Um, the tuning fork has been studied. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't often use the tuning fork test um, consistently in my, in my exam room. There is a lot of just clinical suspicion for um, a physician or clinician to um, kind of go down that route. But my approach is if I have an athlete, a runner who comes in, I mean, I get this probably every clinic at least once, um, maybe a few times a week, I'll get a a runner with tibia pain or shin pain. And they're like, I've got shin splints. I am starting up. I went from no activity during the pandemic or earlier in the pandemic. And now I'm ramping up my mileage because um, the coach gave me this program. And this is usually kind of in the high school level. So not, um, not knocking on um, or, or knocking down coaches out there. I feel like um, coaching, um, having coaching access can be highly valuable. And um, Coach Mario um, Frioli is, um, he was my coach. I'm not training consistently enough right now for him to coach me, but um, I find it very valuable. But anyway, um, some, especially younger um, adolescent athletes, when they get into um, more training, they um, present to me with shen pain or even college athletes and um, recreational athletes. And so my, um, I go through a history and kind of get the the lay of the land of their training volume, if there have been any um, increases, get a little bit of an understanding of their shoe wear, get an understanding of um, other risk factors, which we can get into um, regarding kind of nutrition and changes in body weight and a um, menstrual cycle. And we can um, go and go in that deeper in a little bit. And then um, I do my exam and um, depending on um, how severe it is, I'll um, so say they have just mild pain, they don't know, don't have pain. 
um, all the time. All, um, of course, tenderness to palpation or pain with palpation is an easy one, especially with the shin. But if you think about the hip, and that is a lot more vague. They usually have more vague, diffuse pain. Um, sometimes with sacrum, they may think it's SI joint related. And so being able to tease out some of those um, locations and either reassure or escalate it to more imaging um, is super valuable for just peace of mind for an athlete. And then um, for the foot too, you kind of need to tease out, is this really soft tissue or is this bone? And I think with the foot especially, it can be um, it can also be very vague and if it's more kind of plantar fascia or if it's kind of where it's located on the bone. So you got to like narrow it down. You're not going to do a full body scan and, and just look and see what lights up. Uh, so sometimes if my suspicion is high enough, I'll get an x-ray in, in clinic. And um, part of that is um, just to make sure that there's um, not something more concerning and um, that we're, that we may be missing due to like referred pain or, or some other um, cause. And then, so that's with a, so that's an x-ray. So that's a plain radiograph. And those are pretty accessible in most clinics or um, pretty easy to get. Um, I also sometimes do special exam maneuvers depending on the location. So a single leg hop test, um, especially if I'm, if I'm worried about a very unstable, more severe fracture, I'm not going to have the athlete jump on it um, single leg. But most of the time, these are um, more in that stress reaction or lower grade bone stress injury phase. So I feel safe to do that. Um, not... Sometimes they are without pain um, with a hop test and there are still stress reactions. So um, if you're listening to this and doing single leg hop tests because you're concerned about a bone stress injury and you, you don't have pain, um, I would still explore and investigate further um, instead of just self-diagnosing. Um, I've done that too. So um, I, am, I am guilty of that. And then um, also there's kind of other unique exam maneuvers like the fulcrum, fulcrum test for a femoral shaft bone stress injury. And that one's a little more, it's definitely harder to describe without showing you um, different um, pain with, um, they may have range of motion restrictions, um, sometimes because their body's trying to protect the bone. So all those things are happening in my exam room. And then um, based on my suspicion, then if I'm worried about a bone stress injury and the x-ray um, is, is pretty unremarkable, doesn't show the fracture line. On rare occasion, I will see um, an actual, especially with foot um, x-rays, I'll sometimes see um, bone stress injuries in the um, metatarsals, so the foot bones. Um, then I'll get an, an MRI. And turnaround is usually a pretty, um, thankfully, pretty quick for me. Um, that can be really frustrating for an athlete because sometimes they order a schedule an MRI and it's like two or three weeks from now. And they're like, do I keep running? Do I stop running? What do I do in the meantime? Usually I'm recommending... Um, lower impact cross training in the interim, um, just kind of hedge my bets and say, Hey, that way, if there is um, something um, unfortunate and some unfortunate news on that MRI, you're already prepared with um, doing the right type of more lower impact activity. And we may even have to reduce that even more um, based on the, the imaging. So it's a little bit case by case, I'll say as far as the management and the in between, but there are other types of imaging modalities out there that I don't often use, but um, I just think it's important just to be thorough. Um, there's bone scans. Um, bone scans were the, I believe, the gold standard initially for bone stress injuries. Um, but unfortunately, bone scans, um, they do a, use a higher amount of radiation. And so they're not as often, um, not, not used as frequently in the um, medical care of an athlete or clinical care of an athlete. 
And now kind of more up and coming um, ultrasound. Ultrasound um, is, is nice. It's quick. It's in the clinic. And especially for more surface level um, bones like the uh, metatarsals or the foot bones or even even the tibia potentially um, could be used to um, help give a clinician the direction and guidance on um, a, a bone stress injury. I'll, I'll be honest, I don't personally use it more just because there is a there's a degree of time that that takes. And there's also um, just a level of uncertainty with the, the diagnostics that um, I would just want to spend a lot more time and see a bit more evidence as far as this is the protocol for bone stress injuries. This is um, the evidence behind that. But I do think down the road, that could be a really great um, time-saving, inexpensive method to, um, to diagnose bone stress injuries. Would you say that MRIs are a little bit more effective or just more accurate at diagnosing bone injuries than, say, an x-ray? Is it just more sensitive? Yeah, the sensitivity is much higher and actually and specificity is, is higher um, just for. So if an MRI is is negative for an and um, negative for any bone stress injury or edema, sorry, negative for any edema inflammation or fracture line, I'm much more comfortable with allowing that athlete to kind of keep pushing forward unless we're just completely off with the scan and just miss the, the, the bone or the anatomic location. Um, I, do, I will share one story, and this occasionally happens. And um, if an athlete has um, some, some hip pain or some vague upper leg pain and a clinician is worried about a bone stress injury of the femoral neck, um, sometimes um, that femoral that bone stress injury is, is more kind of deeper into the like the, the long bone of the femur. And so the the MRIs of the hips often will miss like a true femoral shaft bone stress injury. And so you have to keep that clinical suspicion. If an athlete's not improving, there is a possibility that um, it's it's a little bit lower and that the MRI didn't fully capture it. But I think over the last five years, that's maybe happened once or twice, and we were pretty quick to, um, to get that follow-up imaging. You have introduced me to the term clinical suspicion, and I'm really excited about that term. I've never heard it before, and I think I'm going to start to use it more on the regular. <laughs> I'm also glad to know that when I had my stress fracture scare, and this was probably 2002, I got a bone scan. So it's good to know I was exposed to probably more radiation than I would have liked. <laughs> 2002, I would say that there that was probably still like gold standard recommendations not to call out your your clinician, but yeah, <laughs> quite a bit more radiation. I don't think you're like lighting up in the dark yet, but <laughs> No, not yet. And that was my only bone scan, so I'm probably okay. Um now, you've also hinted at risk factors for bone injuries. And, and now I would like to actually talk about what are these risk factors? And I think that's going to give us almost a blueprint on how we can structure our training and our lifestyle on how to prevent these kinds of injuries. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely an area of um, research interest of mine. And I think it's it's the one that everybody wants to know. It's like, all right, why am I, why am I getting these bone stress injuries? How can I prevent um, future bone stress injuries? And, and really addressing those risk factors early. And that's kind of part of my clinical history. Part of, part of my research is to help quantify the, like, how do you quantify this risk factor being more important to prioritize than this other one? And um, when we think about risk factors for, for bone stress injury, we kind of think about a bigger picture of like also bone health. And what are we, what are things to, um, what are, what are contributors to, to bone health? And there is a genetic 
uh, component and a genetic contributor. So we can't forget about that. So thinking about family history of um, early osteoporosis or family history of fractures in the family that are maybe um, not the obvious like fall from the monkey bars and um, break your wrist type type fracture. And um, then looking also at other principles of just um, bone metabolism. And with bone metabolism, I'm thinking about how is that bone remodeling um, happening? And is that a bone remodeling? So that's bone formation and bone breakdown. And we're constantly going through bone remodeling throughout our life, throughout, um, throughout even right now. And um, that bone remodeling changes um, with, with load and stress and strain. And so thinking about the, the bone metabolism, without getting into too much detail, um, there are hormonal contributors to that, that, that bone metabolism and that bone remodeling, and specifically different sex hormones like um, estrogen and testosterone and um, different thyroid hormones. And all of them have different interplay and different relationships to, to bone health. And so I think about what are some things that can actually suppress those hormones. And when we think about hormonal suppression, then we think about nutrition. So I'm kind of taking a backwards approach to some of my research on low energy availability, the female athlete triad, and um, REDS, or relative energy deficiency in sport. So we kind of have to backtrack and think about this low energy availability, which um, could be from a, a change in training volume, so overtraining and not matching those nutritional or fueling needs, or some degree of um, underfueling, whether that's intentional underfueling or undereating or unintentional underfueling, sometimes from that, um, that change in training. And so prolonged low energy availability can lead to these effects and suppress the effects on different hormones and sex hormones. And over time, that can affect that bone remodeling, and it can also affect other um, physiologic um, changes or can, can affect the physiology, um, specifically in females, um, can lead to changes in menstrual cycle. So we think about, um, I ask about periods and irregular periods when I'm concerned about um, bones because that irregular period or delayed period or missed period by a ath female athlete could be leading to suppressive, uh, could be leading to um, higher bone stress injury risk because of that suppressive hormone effect from the from whatever that um, underlying causes, which could be the, the that low energy availability. So thinking about the nutritional component and asking nutritional questions is super important. And um, males are also at risk um, for the effects of low energy availability um, from other sex hormone suppression, um, such as testosterone. So I do ask questions even related to just energy levels, fatigue, ask about libido, um, changes in sex drive, morning erections. And um, those can also be signs from low energy availability, which could be affecting the bones. I think about other, I ask other questions about um, nutrition um, related to calcium and vitamin D intake, whether it's through supplements, ideally through diet. Um, if they know if they're getting enough calcium and vitamin D in their diet, some of them don't know. Um, I think about, I ask about strength training. Are they doing any strength training, especially in runners? They, they may or may not. I think it's getting um, to be more popular in the running community, which is very exciting to see and um, what type of strength training they're doing. And then I'm asking about even sports history. Did they only run growing up or did they engage in other sports? Did they engage in multidirectional sports? Sports um, that have involved more multidirectional movement patterns um, have been shown to improve bone mineral density. And, and so there could be some, some 
protective benefits and, and some protection to those bones um, with that past um, sports history. And then I ask also a little bit about biomechanics and biomechanical risk factors. I'm not a biomechanist, but uh, I am the medical director of our motion analysis sports performance lab. So I work closely with uh, biomechanists and I'm thinking a lot about what biomechanical um, factors could be contributing to bone stress injury. And I'm sure that's a that's a podcast in and of itself as far as running biomechanics and the evidence behind certain forms or types of running, whether it's foot strike patterns or cadence or um, other landing um, different ways that um, the, the hips and the knees and the alignment um, could be factored into um, a, a running-related injury and a bone stress injury. So I ask um, a little bit about um, their running biomechanics. It's much easier to take a look at how they run and, and see them run um, when, they're, when they're not injured. So kind of a long-winded um, way to say, you know, there's a lot of um, contributors to, to risk factors, and um, some of them have stronger evidence than others. Um, the low energy availability and um, triad risk factors are definitely um, show um, that the greater number of female athlete triad risk factors, so kind of um, related to menstrual irregularities, related to even BMI, um, lower BMIs, um, are really are associated with greater risk of bone stress injury. And then um, also um, related to just um, broader REDS um, risk factors. So um, I didn't really share this definition, but REDS stands for relative energy deficiency in sport, which is an expansion of the triad and encompasses a number of other health and performance consequences. And I think both of them are used out um, in the literature and also in podcasts. So it's nice to be able to um, share both. And I, I use them um, both and both in my research as well as um, in my kind of day-to-day practice. So I'll stop there because I think I kind of took some tangents. <laughs> That's what we do here on this show. But I would love to focus a little bit more on some of the things that runners can better control. You know, it's, it's really hard to control your genetics. It's a little tricky to control your biomechanics to a certain extent. So let, can we talk a little bit more about diet? And I, I think uh, low energy availability hints at the idea that probably the number one mistake with your diet is just simply not eating enough calories during the day so that you don't have the, the energy available to you to do the training you're doing. But is it simply enough, uh, simply a matter of not eating enough food or do we have to get more specific with not just any calories? I'm sure healthy calories are better than fast food calories, but how do we better think about this? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great question because it's like, okay, like what's my number? How, how much do I need to take in? I'll, I'll make up for it at, at dinner time every night or, um, get, get double the pizza at, at, with my, with my friends. And I, I really think it's important to remember, yeah, timing matters and um, kind of the the quality of the food um, does matter. And I mean, if you're going to default, if there's there's nothing but donuts um, for breakfast, I'd rather have the athlete go for the donut than go for a run fasted. Of course, um, maybe be careful and not, don't eat like five donuts before the before the run or before the, the activity it could um, backfire. But um, I do, I really think it's important to think about fueling pre pre-run or pre-activity. And um, I think that there's there's a lot more research and debate about um, fasted activities and intermittent fasting. And um, I work with a lot of adolescent athletes and young runners and young younger athletes. And I think it's so important to think about um, fueling timing and avoid those prolonged fasting periods that could potentially suppress the metabolism. 
and lead to these low energy availability states and kind of um, really affect the hormones uh, and how that over time can then affect um, bone bone remodeling and all these risks that I had explained earlier. And so, so pre-fuel really kind of focusing on getting enough, getting enough carbs. Um, I think that athletes are usually under carbing, <laughs> under carb loading and um, just not getting enough carbohydrate intake throughout the day. And then also that post, post run, post, um, post activity and post race fueling. It's really getting that, getting something in the body right after that training and then maybe getting a, a, a heartier meal a little bit later. So yes, I think that um, I'd probably be more focused on um, timing and kind of consistent fueling as opposed to um, be worried about the perfect macro micronutrient ratio. I think that athletes who um, are practice veganism or vegetarian um, do need to be more mindful and more thoughtful about um, how they get specific nutrients. And so I think that is a time where they just need to focus more on, am I getting enough iron? Am I getting enough some of these other vitamins and minerals that are just harder to access without um, some of these other um, food sources and food groups? So um, kind of a more broader answer to your question, but it's it's more than just the, the number at the end of the day that that athlete um, takes and puts into their body. Yeah. And I think the aspect of this when it comes to timing is worth highlighting because one of the things that I've learned just recently in the last year or two is the the energy deficiency that you might have within an individual day is also important. So if you're someone who eats a moderate-sized breakfast, you skip lunch, and then you have a huge dinner, that's probably not good. And just having a more even distribution of calories throughout the day is really important to kind of have that steady supply of energy throughout the day. And, and this is admittedly something that I struggle with. You know, I'm a backload your calories kind of a day kind of a guy. And, and I understand that that's not the ideal way to do it. Um, can you speak to that issue a little bit more and, and how we can kind of work around it? Yeah, I think um, a lot of, especially some of the athletes that I, that I talk to that are, that are really busy, they're on the go. They're rarely eating like with a, within a, they have a nice hour to sit down for lunch and enjoy the meal and prepare something. It sounds luxurious. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's got to be fast on the go and, and really efficient. And I think that there is beauty in trying to find those days of like sitting down and enjoying a meal with other people. But I, I also get it and I am guilty of it too. So I think making sure, like you said, you've got that, you've got that tank of that energy balance throughout the day. And if we just kind of imagine it very simply as that, you do not want that tank to go below that red line. And so keeping that tank nice and um, adequate and balanced without the fluctuations is going to be, um, I think, better from a performance um, standpoint, but also um, just from a just hormones and how that's going to affect even just stress hormone response um, is so important. So um, I think it's it's great to plan ahead, bring the snacks, bring the, um, the, the easy to access fuel when you're, when you're traveling and you're on the go and, and make sure that you're getting kind of complete meals too. Um, I think it's, it's also easy to kind of default to, to kind of snacking throughout the day. And then it gets much more harder to quantify. Was that really enough for, for that athlete or are they, um, are they under fueling? And then, 
ultimately, at the end of the day, maybe the number still adds up because of that backload. But is that still leading to a micro adjustment to the metabolism? And some of those some of those hormones that that optimize metabolism that leads to issues with bone health and just overall just a performance effects too. And these are hard habits to break because I think um, being even from me working in in residency, I had a lot of pretty pretty bad habits that I had to break. That um, I'm not sure. I can't believe I'm not sure if I shared this with you last time we chatted, but I was training for my first second marathon in residency, my first, my intern year, which was a lot more rigorous and long days, working nights. And I was training for the Lincoln Marathon. It was like springtime. So kind of halfway through training, I was feeling really fatigued, just attributed it to being a resident and was doing rounds with my team. So rounds like when you go around the hospital and like um, present the patients that you're taking care of. And this was at the VA and the VA in um, Omaha, like is, I don't know how many floors, but we took a lot of stairs up and down to go to the different levels. And I remember going up a second flight of stairs and I, um, nobody else on my team was training for anything. And I, I would have thought that I was a little bit more fit um, than some of the other, re- the, the other team members at that time, um, not to like blow up my ego, but I just, I was training and I was working hard and I was so out of breath and my heart rate was just beating so hard and my legs felt like lead. And I was like, I am iron deficient. I know I am. I, and so I got the labs. Um, I, I went and um, saw someone, um, got, got um, labs and I had iron deficiency anemia and I was frustrated with myself and a little embarrassed. And my hemoglobin was so low that I I could have gotten a transfusion. And I looked back at my diet and it was crap. I was eating hospital foods and eating um, no red meat. And and so I had to really kind of stop, check myself. I, I didn't run that marathon and really focused and prioritized my nutrition. And it was a game changer for me. Um, I felt I started, and I also did supplement for a period of time too, which we can talk about as far as the value in supplements versus some of the some of the risks of supplements. But I also just really increased my overall iron in, iron intake through my diet. And even though that wasn't a bone stress injury, I think my my kind of circle back to that is poor fueling, either through leading to direct effects on um, on the bones through prolonged energy deficits or through deficiencies in in certain important nutrients like iron that led to increased fatigability, which in my case was more fatigability, is going to affect your training. And that could lead to poor, I mean, even just for me, a decomposed and just my form just really breaking down more easily and increased load onto the bones because my muscles were fatiguing out and not able to really stabilize the bones. And there is some scientific evidence about muscle fatigue leading to increased bone stress injury risk, um, more so in um, animal studies. But I I think it's an important factor to keep in mind that, yeah, maybe you're um, even at an energy balance, but there's um, either fatigability through a, a nutritional deficiency like iron or just poor sleep patterns and sleep habits that could also be contributing to um, overall risk. 
Well, it sounds like you caught this cycle early and it sounds like you were sort of starting to experience some of those risk factors and because of your background and sort of knowing some of those signs and being an athlete, you were able to to kind of look at your your own training and your previous diet and, you know, kind of cut that cycle off and and kind of get back to where you are now. Now, if someone isn't able to catch this cycle early and they have been diagnosed with a stress fracture, what does the recovery and treatment look like? Because this is often, I think, where runners can sometimes go astray because we're so used to repetitive stress injuries of, you know, some of a muscle or a tendon or something similar to that. And, and this is, like you mentioned earlier, sort of a whole different ball game. Yeah, unfortunately, this isn't something that you can just kind of cut down mileage by 50%, do um, a little bit of um, go into get referred to physical therapy and and be back um, training at full volume in a couple weeks or a month. Um, depending on so the duration of rest is very dependent on the anatomic location. So where is that bone stress injury, um, and the severity, so kind of back to that grading scale, a grade one bone stress injury, maybe is still unfortunately going to be about a six week um, time away from, from sport. And that can be daunting for an athlete who's, who's training, who's been building up for, for sport. And there, and so there could be, there's variations with that, um, depending on, um, kind of how severe it is. And, and if there is some level of um, modified activity that can be done, but for a higher grade bone stress injury, it could be, could be two months. It could be three months. Um, femoral necks we take very seriously. And so, um, the bone stress injury diagnosis comes on um, that gets gets delivered to the athlete. Uh, oftentimes, there is a period of non weight bearing, so they're on crutches, or a period of um, offloading through a boot, um, a cam boot. Um, usually, is a is a cam boot, so a special type of of walking boot. And I'll be honest, I I don't like to. I try to get an athlete out of that um, period of immobilization as safely as possible. And, and primarily because we're thinking about um, all the different muscle changes happening, the muscle atrophy, the changes in um, crutch walking, the changes in boot walking. And, and I, I have talked to athletes who are like, yeah, my knee's bugging me, my back's bugging me. And um, I will say, if, you're, if you've got a boot, make sure that you've got like an equal sized platform shoe for the other, other, um, sh- other foot. So you're walking as um, balanced as possible. And then it's just this patient period of gradually increasing load. And it's not an overnight, an overnight trick, an overnight, oh, you're out of the boot, you can get back to running. It's we have to reintroduce this remodeling bone to impact in a way that's that's graded and that the bot that the remodeling can continue to adapt with with the load. And there's been um, some research just showing how how much that even just bone mineral density can change over after an athlete goes into a period of um, non, um, non-weight bearing or rest after sport. Because even if the athlete isn't um, in a boot or on crutches, they're still changing their activity level to a degree that's affecting their, their bone density. I'm not saying that it's dropping so bad that they're at, at significantly greater um, fracture risk, but it's dropping to a point that you have to be be careful when you're um, increasing that and progressing that athlete. And I think that's where athletes often make them make the mistake, unfortunately, is they try to get back to their level of training volume too soon. And um, my recommendation would be to drag that out 
and be more conservative with that um, running progression. And it's it's going to take longer than they than they um, want to admit or they realize. And it's also going to require a lot more rehab, muscle conditioning, thinking about running form to make sure that they're not compensating. Because I will say I see a lot of athletes who come back from a bone stress injury. And sometimes, unfortunately, they come back with another bone stress injury on the, the other leg. Um, but oftentimes they come back with more of a soft tissue injury, like my, my knees hurting and partly because sometimes the muscles supporting the tibia aren't, aren't fully, um, back to their typical strength. And so other joints are taking more of the, the, more of that impact and load and, um, power. Emily, it sounds like the, the load that we are trying to gradually introduce to the injured athletes recovery program doesn't necessarily have to be running. What what are some examples of how an athlete could gradually increase load during this, you know, six week to three month period, depending on the severity of their their bone injury? Yes, Jason, I'm glad you brought that up. I am definitely meant to talk about the the cross training and the other um, levels. So just because a runner is not able to run because they're um, at that period of of rest and, and non weight bearing or or no impact, um, there are other types of activities that. Um, can be helpful to maintain some level of aerobic fitness. So, um, of course, swimming early on um, is better because of the non-impact nature. Um, swimming is hard for me because I'm not a very good swimmer. So I feel like I'm definitely probably overexerting myself than, than necessary. And I think that's also important to not overstress the body with cross-training and other um, other non-impact activities. So keep that in mind for those, those athletes, especially who like to stay moving. Um, Non, non-weight bearing like bicycle, stationary bike, I'll get an athlete on. Sometimes not right away. It depends on the severity of the injury. Um, there are um, some people do um, aquatic jogging or um, underwater underwater running, um, aqua jogging. And then also Alter-G or um, anti-gravity treadmills can be helpful too with that um, later on in that return to run progression. Um, it's hard because there is just the access and the resources of um, Alter-G to get access to that. But um, I have um, worked with athletes um, on run progressions with, with and without Alter-G. What about strength training? Yeah, yeah. And then another piece that I incorporate even before I get them running is we'll get um, some double leg strength work going. And sometimes even before double leg strength work where they're standing, they can do um, things on the floor, kind of more open chain type exercises. Um, just to get some degree of um, muscle strength and conditioning going. And then um, in addition to that um, lower body strengthening, um, which is all I would say it's part of all of my treatment plans for athletes, um, I'll also start to do some degree of um, plyometric. So kind of more ballistic um, impact activity too. So in kind of at the same time that they're doing a run progression. This is great, Emily. I think we have a pretty good idea now of what bone injuries are, how they're treated, what the risk factors are. Is there anything I might have missed in this conversation? And and I know we're probably scratching the surface. Um, and, and now that I'm asking you, I would actually like to know a little bit more about supplements. What are some supplements that might be helpful in either the prevention or the treatment? I'm sure something that is helpful in a preventative sense is also helpful as you're treating it and sort of getting out of this, this hole. 
Yeah, that's a question that often comes up in in clinic is, should I be on supplements? I had an athlete who actually was just trying to be more proactive about, um, she had a a low bone mineral density finding on her her DEXA scan, which I should also mention um, that oftentimes if I'm concerned about an athlete who has more chronic low energy availability, and so this bone stress injury is occurring from a hormonally suppressed state from REDS and the female athlete triad, male athlete triad, then I often move forward depending on the location of the bone stress injury and some of the other clinical um, pictures. So like, is there, is the training at a level that I wouldn't think that this would be the injury that would occur? Then I do additional bone health workup. And so sometimes that involves, I'm getting different vitamins and mineral, um, vitamins and mineral checks through labs. So checking a calcium and vitamin D and an iron level among kind of my top, top, uh, top labs. And then I'm also checking um, bone mineral density. So through a DEXA scan, which is a special type of um, x-ray or special type of imaging modality that measures bone mineral density. And so to your point about supplements, um, I usually recommend really looking deep at the diet and making sure that that's optimized through vitamins, minerals, and specifically focusing on um, vitamin D and calcium. And then um, usually I, I may have an athlete on a, just a, a basic multivitamin or a calcium supplement, but the vitamin D, sometimes I do have to um, prescribe higher doses for based on how low they are. And I would say that's probably the more variable um, variable um, mineral that, um, or vitamin, excuse me, that, that I often have to su- supplement and order, order for. Um, regarding other supplements out there um, that I'm a little bit more hesitant because sometimes you don't know, um, especially if it's not a, a trusted or um, part of a, a list of um, supplement sources. I, I'd hate for an athlete to get um, exposed to another um, medication or something that maybe isn't um, wasn't on the on the on the label. But those are that's where I where I start. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like you know the the normal things people think about when they're thinking about bone health, you know, vitamin D, calcium. I actually recently learned that I was slightly vitamin D deficient in February of this year, which probably isn't too rare in February for people who live in a climate where there is a winter. Um and but what I really liked about that through, you know, the inside tracker testing that they do is that I actually figured it out so that I could start supplementing and getting those vitamin D levels up because I'm not spending a lot of time at the beach in February. Uh, I think it's important to supplement with that. And Emily, I think before we wrap today, I think one thing I would like to say is I'm a big believer in runners knowing their bodies, understanding training so that they can make a lot of decisions for themselves. And if they have a little niggle in their ankle, you know, self-treatment is really important and you have to know how to do that. But when it comes to bone injuries, this is where I don't like runners to do anything themselves. I don't want them to self-treat a stress fracture. And with the complexities that you have outlined today, I think it's really important just to recognize that this is a type of injury that does require a formal diagnosis, getting checked out you know, at the clinic by an expert so that you actually know what you're dealing with because if you don't and you make the mistake of doing too much on a potential bone injury, it might 
just double the amount of time that you have to recover from this injury. And it could really set you back, especially if you're a runner who has aggressive goals or, you know, you're really going after it from a competitive perspective. So uh, I just wanted to, to bring that up as I thank you for all your expertise today. Yeah, absolutely. It's not, you, you don't want to um, try and self-diagnose and rehab and recover from a bone stress injury without um, some assistance from a professional. For sure. Well, Emily, you do some really incredible work. You are online as well. Where can folks learn a little bit more about you and your work? Yeah, um, thank you. I was going to give um, a, a plug for the the research that we're doing. Um, I was recently um, got this honor of being the director of a new female athlete research program at Stanford, um, which we call FASTER, stands for Female Athlete Science and Translational Research. And you can find the website at faster, F-A-S-T-R dot Stanford dot E-D-U. Um, my Instagram is Emily Krauss, MD or at Emily Krauss, MD. And my um, Twitter is at Emily Krauss, MD as well. So you can, you can find us there and learn more about what um, some of the cool work that we're doing um, for female athletes. Awesome. We'll include those links in the show notes on strength running. Emily Krauss, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this episode with the esteemed Dr. Emily Kraus. If you find value in this podcast, I would so appreciate a review in Apple Music or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, if you enjoy the Strength Running Podcast, you can support us by supporting our supporters. So much supporting going on. <laughs> These are all companies that I trust, that I use myself, and that contribute to the running community. Inside Tracker is a company that I've been working with for years and I hope to continue for years to come. They're one of the most reputable personal blood testing companies that you can find. Their goal is to help you analyze your body's biomarkers like stress hormones, testosterone, vitamin D, sex hormones, mineral levels, and more. And using your personal data, they create optimal ranges for each of those biomarkers. So if you're outside of your personal optimal zone, they have an ultra-personalized nutrition platform that gives you science-backed suggestions for moving into the preferred zone via diet, lifestyle, or exercise changes. This helps you avoid any health problems. It helps you optimize your training, improve your performances, and reduce your injury risk. I've personally gotten three ultimate tests myself, and the process is easy, it's simple, and it's very eye-opening. They also have at-home testing, which only takes about 15 minutes. Go to insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning to see how you can get 25% off site-wide on any personalized blood test that they offer. Of all the purchases you can make in your running, this one can actually improve your performances. It's a wonderful opportunity. You can see all the details at insidetracker.com slash strengthrunning. We're also supported by the Spartan Race Series. You've probably heard of Spartan races, but you probably don't know that they offer such a wide variety of types of races. From short to long distance obstacle courses, and even ultra distances, to trail races, stadium races, and even city races in major areas. They also have kids races, and I'm hoping to bring my kids to the Spartan Race in Colorado Springs on June 12th. If you're local to Colorado, it'd be great to meet. Go to Spartan.com and find an event near you. And what I love about more challenging races, like obstacle course races, is that they diagnose your weaknesses. They're a diagnostic tool to help you pinpoint what area of your fitness might be lacking. Do you have a general aerobic deficiency? Do you struggle with upper body strength? 
Can you handle the stop-and-start nature of OCRs? Do you have the mobility to perform the obstacles? Signing up for a race that challenges you in a different way, like a Spartan race, is a helpful way of finding out more about yourself as an athlete. Go to Spartan.com to see all of their race options, find one near you, and hopefully I can see some of you at the June Spartan race here in Colorado. Thanks for listening, sharing, subscribing, telling your friends, and supporting the Strength Running Podcast. If there's anything I can ever do to help your running, email me at support at strengthrunning.com. We'll be in touch soon.